Podcastle, episode 363, for May 12th, 2015, L'Etoile Flamboyante, by Samantha Henderson, rated R for violence and disturbing imagery. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle, the weekly fiction podcast. I'm Graham, your co-editor and host. Today's story was originally featured in the Word Weber Press anthology of 2013, Allegories of the Tarot. It features 22 stories based on the major arcana of the tarot deck. This particular story uses the star, which is said to represent hope and faith, courage and fulfilment, inspiration and calm. There is a sense that the star lights your way burns away the shadows and brings renewed self-esteem and increased trust in yourself. Now, I'm not sure you'll find all of those in this story, but you will find some. You may just have to look a little harder than usual. Podcastle presents L'Etoile Flamboyante by Samantha Henderson. Samantha lives in Southern California by way of England, South Africa, Illinois and Oregon. Her short fiction and poetry have been published in Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, Goblin Fruit, and Weird Tales, and reprinted in The Year's Best Fantasy and Science Fiction, Steampunk Revolutions, and The Mammoth Book of Steampunk, as well as being podcast in Podcastle, Escape Pod, and The Drabblecast. She's the author of the Forgotten Realms novels Heaven's Bones and Dawnbringer, and she's currently working on a novel based on her short story, Cinderella Suicide. The story is read to you by C.S.E. Cooney. C.S.E. Cooney is a Rhode Island writer, actor, poet and singer-songwriter. She's the author of the Dark Breakers series, The Breaker Queen and The Two Paupers, Witch Beast Saint, the first erotic fairy tale in her Witch's Garden series, can be found at Strange Horizons, while the second, The Witch in the Almond Tree, is available for purchase on Amazon. Cooney's first short fiction collection, Bone Swans, is forthcoming with Mythic Delirium in July of 2015. She recently started working as an audiobook narrator for Tantor Media with Carol J. Perry's Caught Dead Handed, a witch city mystery, Cooney's first book-length narration, and it's now available for purchase. And... Thanks to a successful Indiegogo campaign, Cooney's alternate personality, the imaginary rock star Brimstone Rhine, is just about to hit the studio to record her first EP, Electo, Electo! Eight songs of myth and legend, witches, queens, nymphs, fiends, as you've never heard them sung before. Links will be in the show notes. But now, a circus is rolling into town... It's not quite the circus you may remember from times past, but times now are hard. So take some time out, come watch the show, and enjoy the story. L'Etoile Flamboyante by Samantha Henderson Last night I dreamed about the painted children, the dragon leviathan, the boy made of horses, and the girl... L'Etoile Flamboyante In the dream I was sitting at the edge of the cliff beside the ruins, not far from where I lie now. But I was straight and whole again, 
the tiger reclining beside me like an outsized house cat. The water at the foot of the cliff glistened in the starlight, and the children were in a boat, little wider than a rowboat, looking up at me. The girl stretched out her arms, and I shifted as if to rise. The tiger gave me a lazy nudge. Not yet, it said, silently. We are still at the business of dying. It doesn't matter where I came from and what I was before, when there were cities with power that came from vast engines, where water came with a turn of the wrist, where there were telephones and television and flying a mile above the ground was taken for granted. In the chaos that came with the ending of that world, my body was broken more than once, and I lost my family, our beautiful house filled with beautiful things like crystal glasses to serve chilled wine and machines that sang. Or perhaps I was always crippled and indigent. Perhaps the woman, my girl, my boy, or the things I remembered having are some of the many stories people create after a world is destroyed and remade. Truth becomes a house built from splintered lumber, and it's better to tread carefully around the bad joins and makeshift foundation, lest the whole blessed structure come tumbling down. That is why, as part of the grace we share in this violent world, no one asks a lot of questions. I joined Hobart's carnival because one of his mares got loose. I found her in the waste behind Goddard's market, where I was cleaning blood from the stalls for my bread. I got a piece of rope around her neck and found her thrushy foot. I had it soaking when Hobart found me. I'd learned about curing horses from when Goddard's was a post-stop, before they gave up and sold the animals for meat. And he offered me bed and board to stay a week until it was cured. Better food than Goddard's, so I agreed. But there's many more able-bodied that can keep a hoof sound and stop the mares from bickering. When the carnival started to move and it was time to strike the tents, I saw him eye me, with my back so twisted I couldn't scurry up the poles and bring the sailcloth down. I saw him think, useless trow, for everyone with Hobart's, fortune-teller and fairy dancers included, did double duty and knew not to shirk their share of labor down to fighting if it was needed. I would have been dumped in the next backwater we played, had it not been for the tiger. Hobart had found or bought or stolen in the back alleys of the world that was a tremendous, slinky, striped beast that twisted in its cage like the tawny embodiment of the jungle itself. Hobart's was a good show with horses that danced and curtsied enough to please any girl, and acrobats that played their dangerous games overhead with a cheerfulness that seemed to welcome death. But most people have seen clever horses, and know a boy who can do a trick or two. Very few people, even in the world that was, have seen a tiger up close enough to understand the orange-black immensity of it, its slow-burning gaze, the ivory architecture of its jaws as it yawns its contempt. A tiger is a threat, a delightful creep of fear along the spine, and a promise as well. They'll come from their farms in the valleys, their lairs in the cliffs, and pay hard-won coin to see a tiger. Hobart had been able to control the beast so far, to make it leap from its cage and sit like a house cat, to roar on cue and offer its paw. But he knew that dark rumble from the creature's side as it contemplated the first and second row meant one day soon it would shrug off his will and make a red harvest of the tent. When I stood in the aisles and let the tiger see me, that rumble stopped and the cat became quiescent, calm, and bowed its grisly head under Hobart's touch. When I reached into its cage and patted its flank after feeding, 
Hobart let nobody but his own self feed the creature its meat. It grumbled and settled down into sleep. I heard the others whisper that Tiger loved me, but I knew differently. Whether because my crippled spine made me suitable prey, or whether I smelled of the sins of a past I couldn't remember, I saw in the Tiger's regard a restrained hunger, a willingness to wait until the right moment to snap my ill-heeled bone, to sink its teeth into my belly. The tiger took pleasure in that suspended time between the decision to kill me and the actual act, and I was content to live upon its whim. The tiger, and me to keep it from killing the rubes, were a necessity now that Kazar had left the carnival. They called Kazar a soul-eater, what used to be called a hypnotist, but he wasn't a sideshow trickster that made you recite the alphabet backwards and bark like a dog. And they told me he didn't work the day shows at Hobart's carnival, the time when hard-faced children laughed at the clowns juggling handkerchiefs and young girls fell in love with the dancing horses. During the day, the snake handler hefted a milky albino python over her head, and acrobats spun fluid down the ropes from the summit of the big top, and the air was tinged with the smell of burning sugar and cut grass. But we must make our way in a hard world any way we can. So Hobart's had a night circus, where the snake handler did something quite different with a python, and the fairy dancers wore paint and nothing else, and the smell of sugar turned to musk. Children didn't come to the night circus, but their fathers did, and their uncles and brothers, and a few of the bolder women. The night circus was when Kazar flourished. He would ask for three volunteers, never more or less, and sit them in straight-back bentwood chairs facing the audience. With a word, he would cast them into unnatural sleep, with another wake them empty-eyed. At his bidding, they would rise and climb the air, step by step on the ether. Twenty feet up, they paced restlessly over the audience's heads, until he called them down again, and made flames sprout from their fingers, and made them weep blood. At night, in the dusk and amber light of the tent, it would be a simple matter for a skilled illusionist to find a way to make people walk on the air. Thin ropes, which, in their mesmerized state, they were convinced they could walk, or maybe thick sheets of glass judiciously placed. This is what they told themselves in the morning, back to wrestling a living from a shattered land with no magic to it. Those he made paddle the empty air overhead never remembered what happened. But during those musky nights when Kazar commanded the tent, the snake handler told me that there was not a white there, no, not even the carny folk, who did not believe that he could take the soul out of a man and replace it with something inhuman. Fallen angels, the fortune teller whispered. The animals who have died in the service of the carnival, the snake handler said. I only know what they told me because a few nights before I found Hobart's wandering mare limping through Goddard's garbage, something had gone wrong with Kazar's act. The rube sat, listened, opened vacant eyes, climbed the air as before, but although the hypnotist snapped his fingers and spoke the words to bring them back, they stayed, so they said, possessed and climbed the upper air of their own dwellings in a manner most disconcerting. It was a rare green place the carnival had landed, so there were many people, and they were not half-starved and fearful. By the time their relatives were back to have an accounting, their blood-weeping kin in tow, Kazar had vanished into the night, and Hobart thought it sane to do likewise, even into the gritty dry places where garbage heaps like Goddard's were the best shelter. We were headed for another green place now, a city half-drowned in the sea, they told me, where the trade was rough but profitable. On the way, 
Wherever we saw clusters of houses and not too many desperate-looking men, we stopped and made a little show, not bothering to unfurl the big tent. They came to see the jugglers, the fortune-teller, the tiger yawning in its cage, and the horses dance. I suspect that some of them were as entertained by seeing healthy horse flesh as anything else, because I kept the mares and the loan put upon gelding as glossy and sound as they had ever been. It was after one of these half-shows, when we were packing for an early departure, that Kazar returned with the painted children. I hadn't known him before, so the uneasy feeling when a man, tall and well-built, with black hair as glossy as my horse's, came to the hitching fence and asked to see Hobart was a surprise. He had a spiky mustache full of wax and a will of its own, which should have made him absurd. But his eyes, flat and shiny as a snake's, put an end to all impulse to find him funny. He had three small figures with him, shrouded and still, and as he was led away to see the carnival master by one of the fairy dancers, who had stifled a squeak and trembled when she saw him, I saw that each was joined to each and then to Kazar's wrist by a thin gold chain, almost invisible in the morning light. Soul eater, I thought, as I finished wrapping the horse's legs for the journey. No one knew what bargain Kazar struck with a carnival master, and no one asked where Kazar found his children. No one much liked asking the hypnotist anything. He didn't perform or exhibit his finds while we traveled, and all three of the children rode on the back of one horse, a normally lazy mare who acted as if they weighed nothing but who also sometimes paused and tilted her head towards her back, a very unequine look of puzzlement on her face. I wondered whether they were children at all. They were child small, of course, two boys and a girl with heads a little too big for their height and wide, clear, set-apart eyes. Glance at them quickly and there'd be no doubt. You'd take them for children as a matter of course. I remembered, or thought I remembered, a story from the world that was of green-skinned children that were not children who came to a small village and died without revealing where they had come from, and everyone was left with an indefinable sense of mystery and wrongness. Maybe it was simply hard to imagine anyone putting ink and needle in such detail so extensively to a child's tender skin, for we could see through the thin shrouds worn by Kazar's small retinue patterns blossoming over every visible square inch of them. It could not be that he had inked them himself. This was the work of months and years, not to mention the time it would take to heal. He must have bought them, but who in this world would have the time to make over human children into such creatures? The carnies whispered at the campfires when Hobart and Kazar were nowhere in sight that they were a kind of fallen angel, the embodiment of the broken souls Kazar put into the bodies of his subject victims, the ones who walked on air and wept blood. They said that the time he was away, he'd hunted out the three who hadn't come back to themselves, and rendered their bodies into these painted forms. Nonsense, I thought, because why weren't we all done and dead, when the hearty folk they said lived in that last green place hunted Kazar down, him and anyone who sheltered him. We came to the place where the sea had fingered into the basin where a city sat, leaving enclaves that glowed at night along the shore. We found the place Hobart remembered from the last great circle the carnival followed, above the still brown waters of the old city, a flat place with a three-domed building at the edge of a cliff. A distant echo of my old self whispered, Observatory, and through one of the broken domes I could see the remains of a telescope. The able-bodied raised the big top beside the ruins, where an obelisk still stretched toward the sky, the figures incised into the sides long since defaced. 
Brown hills rose behind us, incised with ancient trails, and the fragments of an old sign that stuck up out of the ground like broken teeth. We rested a day, while people came from the enclaves to see what we were about, marveling at the jugglers and the tiger. When it was time for the show, we learned that Kazar once again would have nothing to do with the day circus, and that he kept the painted children, avoiding that cruel word, tattooed, for the nighttime. I saw them waiting with Kazar while the snake charmer writhed, and the acrobats twisted naked, and though the soul-eater flashed me a gutting knife glare, I went to stand with them. He still had them chained, with a thin gold chain that shouldn't have held a kitten, and they peeked at me through their shrouds. Kazar mopped a fat drop of sweat from his temple, and showed no other sign of nervousness. When Hobart, playing ringmaster, promised the crowd a wonder of the world, and when those in the audience who had heard of Kazar murmured in anticipation, he unlooped the chain from one of the boys, thrust the loose end in my hand, and muttered at me to keep them there. Kazar walked to the center of the ring, where the arc lights could swivel and pin him under their glare. The boy followed him like an acolyte. He eyed the front row once by once, as if considering cows at market, judging just how long he could keep them waiting, wondering what he would do, what the small figure beside him was for. Gentlemen, he intoned, just before they got restless. He let a small smile curl under his mustache, and eyed the women scattered here and there in the stands. And ladies. I saw some of them shiver as if he'd made phantom fingers dance across the backs of their necks. It is my pleasure to share with you something so rare, so precious, that I feel confident in telling you that you are an exclusive group, some of the very few that have the opportunity to see such. In the background, Hobart took a deep breath and blew it out. I could smell sweat and sawdust. I turned to one of the children, the girl. She was looking at me intently, almost at my eye level because of my broken back. Don't be afraid, I told her. It was absurd. All small things should be afraid of the night circus. She tilted her head as if she didn't understand me. The thin chain bit into my fingers. I winced as she placed the tips of her fingers on my wrist. The first to be revealed? The Leviathan. Kazar tugged away the boy's covering. There was silence at first, as the people were trying to understand why they should marvel at that most ordinary of things, a child. What did it matter that he was ink-marked? Kazar whispered the next, his voice vibrating in every crevice of the tent. Leviathan, serpent of the world. The boy, if it was a boy, stood, head bowed in the spotlight, naked but for the patterns incised on his flesh. His nakedness didn't register, however, because he seemed entirely clothed in the figure that began in green and gold glory at his ankle and wound thickly around him, knee to thigh to waist to shoulder. The coils shone with the burnished weight of hundreds upon hundreds of scales, and it was breathtaking to consider that they must have each been drawn and not grown. The snaky creature lay heavy over the boy's shoulder, and the head rested on his chest, a monstrous head with golden eyes, and tendrils coiling from jaw and temple, teeth overlapping the lower lip, a hint of smoke about the nostrils. A susurration grew from the crowd as they understood the artistry, the brutality of the thing. At the sound, the boy raised his head and looked at them with flat despair. I felt the girl's hand creep into mine, and behind me, past the flaps of the tent kept open for ventilation, the tiger's vigilant eye hot on my back. The hiss of the crowd settled to the floor of the tent and spread like night fog, 
just over the threshold of hearing independent of them. Kazar knew his audience now and didn't give them time to recover. He threw open his hand toward me and the children in the aisle, not even looking at us, and like an automaton I obeyed, unlooping the chain from the second boy's wrist. He walked towards Kazar with a tremulous grace, and I understood that the hypnotist held them in a thrall that made a gold chain an iron cuff and escape unthinkable. The hiss continued in the still, overwarm air. I still felt the heat of the tiger's gaze on me and then a cool pause as it blinked, indifferent to Kazar's powers. You know what to do, it thought, a lazy purr in my head, and I will not kill you until it happens. With a flourish, the soul-eater whipped away the shroud. Horse boy, he declaimed, and if it wasn't as grand a name as Leviathan, no one noticed. Two horses before, two horses behind, ink-black bay, leaf-brown and palomino. His body was quartered with them. Each took the entirety of one flat pectoral or shoulder blade, extended down a nipton waist and hip bone or buttock. Their legs were his legs. They were caught mid-gallop, and as he shifted his weight under the hungry eyes of the audience, they quivered and twisted, and if the hiss continued in one corner of the tent, from another came the urgent drumbeat of hooves. They ran out of him, not as if he was a canvas or a tattooed boy, but as if he was a vast prairie. The crowd leaned close, and I saw in them a primal longing to mount and ride. The gift of a horse is to be not one place, but another, something I felt through my fingers when I groomed the carnival horses. With the audience still enthralled by the dragon and the horses, Kazar turned his burning eyes to the girl, and her hand clenched on mine. Still, we were both powerless. I removed the chain, and she walked out to him. The boys moved apart while the girl stood before Kazar, an entire breath-holding minute. This time he said nothing. He only nodded and she lifted her arms, the shroud falling away and pooling, discarded on the trampled grass. The entirety of her body was inked the blue of a sky at the edge of twilight, contrasting with the pale yellow mass of the star incised in the center of her back. It looked like she was a vessel carved so that an internal flame blazed outwards. The rays of the star were elongated and edged in black, extending high between her shoulder blades across her ribs and down almost to her buttocks. The rest of her was spotted with smaller, gilded stars of eight points that seemed to float above her skin. The star, he whispered, and let the word hang a moment. L'étoile flamboyante, the burning flame, the light that illuminates, imagined and sought for in the world that was here only for you, gentlemen and ladies. Cutting through the wonder, a gasp. Kazar had broken the bargain implicit between entertainer and entertained, ignored the tender implicit bargain between the con man and the rube. No one at the carnival mentioned ever the world that was. Knowing this, he made a sign and the lamps cut out. In the sudden twilight, the star glowed, pulsing, a fragile heart brutally exposed. Kazar's last words dropped stones in the gut of a river. Never will you see anything so rare. A snap of fabric and the star vanished. The light came on, making everyone blink, and Kazar and the children were gone. I pitied the acrobats who tumbled and contorted afterwards, trying to make that dazzled, moonstruck crowd smile. Before, when Kazar's act was finished, the audience was pleasantly fearful and craved the sex-tinged refresher the acrobats could provide. Tonight they had gone inside themselves, and nothing could coax them out, 
and the performers had the bewildered air of a whore trying to pleasure a dead man. After, Hobart declared Kazar and the painted children would be the last act, assuming anyone came back. It was even odds whether we would fill every space the next night or be run out. Perhaps if we battened on the green of a single township, they would have none of us. But here, with settlements scattered around the edges of a new and alien sea, high on the hills beside ruins, we've become some sort of hybrid of circus and temple, and Kazar's painted children the vessels of a dreadful and compelling sacrament. A path wound down the cliff, and at its base a trickle of pure water poured into the brackish sea. I led the horses down, two by two twice a day, to water them so they didn't foul the sweet water higher up. Hobarts had camped beside the drowned city about a week, and I was leading two mares to drink and bathe a bruised fetlock when I spied a small shadow between them. I didn't know which of them had slipped from Kazar's golden chain, and I hunched my twisted back further so I wouldn't see. As the horses sucked water, I heard one of them wicker, and a small splash, and I did look then, to see a small figure arrowing, swift, towards the center of the sea. On the green, in the center of the triangle of tent, obelisk, and three-domed ruin, the soul-eater stood snarling at Hobart, the two remaining children head-bowed beside him. I just registered that they were the star, l'étoile, he called her, and the horse-boy, when there was a great roar and a shadow that struck at the same time. Something writhed as it rose behind the ruins, coil upon green-gold coil, and a head twice the size of my tiger's cage. The mare screamed and reared, and it took all I had to tug one down. The other pulled away and ran for the brown hills and the broken teeth there. We never saw her again. I could hear the other horses screaming, and prayed that their tethers held, and that they didn't break themselves apart against the ropes. Suspended in the sky and twisting upon itself like an eel in water was Leviathan, serpent of the world. It had no wings, but flew nonetheless, as if the air was a thick medium it had mastered. Its head was half-mouth, its mouth was half-fangs, each like an ivory dagger, and its flame-gold eyes glared at Kazar. Swift as a sparrow it lunged at him, the ferocious maw wide. Hobart jump-stumbled to the side, sprawling on the grass. Swifter than a sparrow, Kazar drew a knife and grasped the star's thin arm, pulling her to him and the point of the knife to her throat in one fluid motion. The point dipped into the skin beneath her jaw, and I imagined I saw at too great a distance to see a welling drop of blood that was not red. He never took his eyes off the dragon. The beast stopped, mouth open, spanning the soul-eater from head to waist. A neat snap, and Kazar would be cut in two, just a pair of legs, and an abbreviated waist spouting scarlet, but the girl would vanish down her brother's throat. The dragon drew back just a fraction, impossibly suspended, and the heat of its eye blazing just as furiously. Water, I thought. The water had hatched this creature as if the boy was a mere egg, the tattoo of a shadow of what was inside. The star said something, softly, but we were all dead silent and frozen, even the mare in my grip. We'd never heard any of them speak, and it mattered little now we did, for it didn't even sound like a human speech, more like the popping of a broken branch, or the sizzle of a stone falling from the sky to earth. The dragon's mouth snapped shut, and the head tilted towards her. She made that sound again. Kazar didn't move except to tighten his grip on her arm. She didn't look at him. The dragon recoiled, segment by segment, until it hovered again over the ruined observatory. 
Its golden glare bathed all of us one by one, as if it considered a hostage it could take in its turn. But we knew Kazar loved none. Love is a rare thing these days. We use each other to live, to grasp us in midair like the catcher in the trapeze act. I am loved only by the tiger. If the dragon devoured any of us, Kazar and Hobart would not even shrug. With a low growl that rattled the earth, the dragon shot away like an arrow. In passing, the tip of its tail flicked a dome, crumbling it like sugar. The night circus was cancelled that evening, while Kazar regrouped. By some miracle, we lost no more horses, although Hobart, angry at the loss of the evening's takings, cuffed me hard for losing the mare, and my ear trickled into the hay all that night. I don't know how the dragon escaped, but I saw Kazar leading his two remaining children in their shrouds to the tent, saw the star stop suddenly, like a sleepwalker awaking, saw her dart forward and tug the gold chain away from the boy. Kazar whirled about, but was slower with a grasping hand than with a knife, and the horse boy danced away, found sure footing, and ran. At first I thought he was running to me, but then I realized the cliff was open at my back, and he would pass me by on the way to that oblivion. Kazar uttered a word I didn't know, except I knew it was terrible, and gave chase, leaving the girl standing alone. In my mind's eye I soared over the scene as the dragon might, seeing the boy, a tiny dot, Kazar a bigger dot streaking after, and many other dots at the edge of comprehension beginning to converge on the boy. His legs pistoned like any other horse, faster and faster, and even after he went over the lip of the cliff they stuttered in the air, carrying him still further. The air gave beneath him, and he fell, even as the horses burst forth from his body, even as the dragon had burst forth from the other boy's body, deep in the sea. Peering over the precipice I could see how it should have been as hooves, Flaring nostrils, thrashing manes hatched from his chest his back. As he landed, they would have galloped off in all four directions, lost like my poor mare yesterday. But the fall was too short, perhaps. No time to emerge fully. Or like real horses, the fall was too much. The rest of the carnival were at the cliff top, and when he hit the ground, everyone drew in a breath, a quick hiss, to ward off the pain of an expected blow. I could almost see the earth bend beneath him like a rubber sheet. I clapped my hands over my ears as the horses, four of them bay, brown, black, and golden, half-hatched from his body, writhed and screamed. Kazar watched, turned, and marched back to the star, who had made no attempt to run herself. He stood before her a long time, and when he moved his right hand, there was a noise from the rest of the carnival, a small movement forward. Even carny folk at the edge of extinction have their limits. He must have done something, though, because that night as he led her solo to the tent, she wore a mask of pulped and gilded paper. Long spines of striped feathers grew from it, a shimmering blob of feather left at each tip, and gave her the look of an exotic insect. Through the eye holes, a shiny black glitter that made her look less human, more like a bird, but also, if you knew where to look, skin bruised purple-black, so it looked like her face was painted. I didn't see the show, but I heard the rubes leaving and swearing that l'étoile flamboyante had risen in the air to the apex of the tent and showered down gold. I was squatting by the tiger's cage, thick in its cat-musk, when Kazar and the star left the tent. There was a barrel fire for warmth and light in the center of the green, and I saw Kazar slide between the girl and the orange glow. I have my own stupidity to blame for not seeing it sooner, 
I thought Kazar kept the children away from the campfire so no one would see them close in the firelight, but it was the girl he was keeping from fire, the open flame of the bonfire, the contained metal heat of the warming bins. Her bruised eyes beneath the thick paper of her mask darted, openly longing, craving the flames. No, not the flame. The glowing coal beneath. I moved as fast as I ever did before in the world that was, and knocked the barrel over. Flame and ember spilled along the ground like gold coins, and burning wraiths flared through the air. Startled for once, Kazar dodged one and lost track of the girl who bent to grasp a glowing coal that tumbled to her feet. The outside of the coal was ash black, and the living heart of it glowed where her fingers smudged the ash away. She lifted it to her lips and bit. Split apart, the coal blazed yellow at the core, red on the outside, and I waited for her scream as her lips burned and her tongue shriveled. Water for the dragon, air and earth for the poor horse, and fire for the star. It was like Kazar and his arrogance to try to tame the elements. He reached for her, but she blazed forth, her mask and shroud gone in an instant. He recoiled arms over his face, as she became too bright to look on, and the shadows she cast on the ground were so black they were voids, and one could trip inside and fall forever. The earth could never contain such light, and she rose, higher and higher, the deadly shadows shifting beneath her, higher past the obelisk, the top of the tent, higher than the dragon had squatted in the air, higher and higher, under the sky that blazed with a new star, brighter than the moon. The carny folk knew that their best chance lay with Hobart, so no one stopped Kazar when he came at me to break me the final time. I made a play at pushing him away, at protecting my head. But once he beat me to my knees, I knew it was no use. The blows came again and again until I could smell nothing but my own blood. When he stopped, I lay in a red blaze, blindness, hearing the tents come down, equipment packed away, the horses laden. It's easy enough, after all, to find someone to take care of the horses. Outside my swollen eyelids I could feel the heat of starlight, so bright the carnival could break camp and travel. It was quiet after they left. All I could hear was the stream trickling to the salty sea, and something that might be the hiss of l'étoile flamboyante. But presently there was a padding of four feet, and a cat's rank smell, and the warmth of the tiger beside me. I know that when the sun has risen and the star fades, the tiger will kill me, and there is a melancholy pleasure in the idea of the end of the waiting and the consummation. I hope that afterwards the beast will not be lonely and will find someone else to love. I lie content, with my blood congealing on the ground, the tiger dozing beside me while the new star blazes overhead. And welcome back. What a strange and melancholy story. It certainly has that carny flavour whilst sketching out people recovering post-apocalypse. It's a kind of brutal redemption there at the end with our storyteller placidly awaiting fate's final hand. What did you think of this story? Come give us some feedback in our forums at forum.escapeartists.net or on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. 
And speaking of feedback, this week we look at episode 353, Irregular Verbs by Matthew Johnson. It was read by Christopher A. Naga. People generally liked the story and were intrigued by its premise. Moritz said, Living less than a mile from an international border and having eight to ten ethnic groups in my apartment, and that's just between my wife and me, this story of course spoke to me. Though I thought it was a bit too much into exposition and sometimes felt a bit like a non-fiction test. Devoted135 said, The linguistic implications of having a language this malleable were very interesting, but the desperate struggle to record enough of his memory so that he would not forget his wife was what really grabbed me and made me pay attention. We're very lucky to have relatively permanent sources of memories, such as photographs, to help us remember loved ones. I can imagine trying to paint portraits before their features faded from memory if pictures did not exist. In the story's culture, the shared language was the best representation of the loved one, so that was what he tried to preserve. Beautiful. And Unblinking said, Ooh, I really liked this one. Memory fades without periodic refreshing, no matter what the subject. So I liked the way the premise set it up so that the forgetting of this two-person language is equated with the fading memories of his best-beloved wife. Without photographs to renew memories, we will even forget the faces of those we love after enough time has passed. Well, here we are at the end, folks. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, our wonderful slushers Arun Dewar and Sarah Goldman, our audio engineer Peter Wood, our forum moderators Talia and Ossicat, your editors Rachel K. Jones and myself, Graham Dunlop, thanks for stopping by and listening to this week's story. We hope you enjoyed. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is Graham Dunlop counselling you to wait. Not yet. We are still at the business of dying. Hello everyone, this is Alistair from Pseudopod and Skatepod and on occasion Podcastle and I've turned up in a lot of other places. I, I podcast a lot and I'm here to tell you about the Parsec Awards. The Parsec Awards are an awards show. Stop cringing, this is a nice one. Every year audio shows and projects in 16 different categories are nominated by fans of the community. Those nominations are then condensed down to a shortlist and judged by a panel of their peers. So you have podcasters, authors, narrators, people who make podcasts, people who work at every level of this medium, judging the best in this medium. And then the winners are presented at DragonCon in Atlanta, Georgia in the first weekend in September. The Parsecs were founded in 2005 by Tracy Hickman, Merle Lafferty, Michael Meningay, and I'm reasonably certain an early ancestor of Fox Mulder. The Parsec Awards recognize those whose work marked the pinnacle of this media form and provide countless hours of entertainment to their audiences. It would be really good if you could find out more about the awards and nominate your favorite podcasts at parsecawards.com. And believe me, this is a true story. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Diane Stoyanovich said, Every star was once darker than the night before it awoke.